The Super Bowl was viewed by a record 123.4 million people. Me falling on the ice while trying to push a trash can uphill was viewed by no one. And let's keep it that way, TikTok. But if you're not trying to hide something embarrassing and want to get your best-in-class content recognized, the final, super final, like absolute final deadline for the Shorty Awards is February 22nd. Go to shortywards.com to enter. Welcome to It's No Fluke, where nothing happens by accident, and every creator's journey is way more impactful than a destination. Michael Gerritsman is the Global Vice President of Programming at Advertising Week. For over a decade, he's programmed and hosted events and broadcasts for organizations that feature some of the world's most influential executives, celebrities, politicians, athletes, authors, and thought leaders. Previously, Gerritsman was the founder and president of Vinyl Artist Management, where he managed the careers of internationally beloved mainstream and independent artists. His ability to build relationships, read the room, and develop long-term partnerships with top talent, it's no fluke. Michael, thank you so much for joining. We'll get into a lot of different uh, things because the background is specific but varied and so i think we can go in a lot of different directions but i want to start with advertising week and specifically how do you keep it fresh how do you keep the programming different how do you keep people engaged yeah of course no it's a, it's a great question um especially given how many events there are every year right so so look we we do it on a global scale every Market is different and has its own personality. Uh, let's let's talk New York Advertising Week for for our U.S. audience. Yeah, what makes it different? You know, four day event, eight stages of content. We have a different track per stage per day. Um, so you're talking thirty to you know almost thirty uh, tracks of content. We have our headliner stage, which is track agnostic. We do that just so that we can keep it a little more open ended, but still almost thirty tracks of content and and they change every year. You know, some of them stick each year because it's the things that people come for. But every year we throw in new topics um, that that are trending and, and that people want to hear from. We listen to the feedback from previous years to see what people liked. I'm I'm data obsessed. Yes. So I'm looking at, at sessions that did well, tracks that did well. I'm looking at all of that to really get a sense of what the, the audience wants. And then from a, a you know an experience perspective, just new activations every year, new and exciting networking opportunities, um, just great chances to connect uh, new talent every year. We try to have really cool entertainment that um, isn't done at, at different events as well. And so we just, we want to create mm -hmm. a really fun, unique experience where not only are people gathering, but you're hearing from the best in the world. You're seeing all of those shiny, fun celebrities that people know and love for, for advertising week as well. Um, and, and seeing talent up close in, in, you know, a, a nice size venue that you just don't usually get the opportunity to see all in, in, in a day. Right. So it's, it's, you could hear from the CMO of Pepsi and then you can hear from uh, uh, the Sharks from Shark Tank or Paris Hilton or Matthew McConaughey or someone talking about their brands. And, and so it's just it's spread out across the day in, in a really fun and exciting. You kind of answered my second question for me, which, again, thank you for doing my work. But sure. what it was going to be about, I think the best way to ensure future success is combing through the data and going, OK, 
take emotion out of it, what worked and what didn't work. Then you can start to, you know, because you can you can take data and then you have to, you know, have insight with it, which is, okay, well, well what are the factors that went to that? So I'll ask the question in a little different way. When you look at the data sometimes, is it skewed versus like how recognizable the person might be versus the content? Or is it kind of hit and miss? I I always say that content sells content. Yeah. There's this really great combination. It's it's also good advice for people as they think about getting onto stages that there's this 360 perspective that I think really makes the most sense with what does well. Um, I, I like to say we have 30 minutes to tell a story up on that stage. If it's not a story, if it's just a presentation, it doesn't yeah. do great, right? Like it's also the, the messaging going into it too. So what's the story we're telling? How are we telling that story? Is it a fireside? Is it a panel? Is it a, a presentation? Is it a debate? You know, we've done all sorts of great formats. And then who's telling that story? Who are the most compelling, uh, qualified, and diverse individuals to tell that story? And diverse can be from both um, diversity perspective, but yes. also, for, which is incredibly important, and also from an industry perspective. Uh, if, if we have a session about brands that work with influencers, Mm -hmm. I don't just want the brand perspective. I don't just want a case study. I don't yes. want to hear how, you know, this particular brand worked with an influencer and this is what happened and that's it. I want to hear from the marketer at the brand. I want to hear from the creator that they worked with. And I want to hear even from the, the agency that connects the creators to the brands. All of those perspectives together really provide the most um, fulfilling type of conversation. Uh, and if we're all doing our jobs right, people learn from it also. Uh, I think that's really what draws. Now, do talent draw? Do, you know, does talent draw? Do shiny celebrities draw? Always. Yes. That's the short answer to your question. Yes. Always. <laughs> so always draw because it's a cool opportunity, right? Like how Absolutely. often do you get to be up close to people? But I think when you put all of that aside and you're looking at an event with hundreds of sessions, let's put the shinies aside for a minute. Content always sells content. A good, a good story with credible people, diverse perspectives, and 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 this is really important. Session titles and descriptions that really are are exciting and fun, and also very clear as to what uh, the story is that's being told and what people should expect to learn. Also, yeah, it's almost like if you go to the conference for a first time, or you go to any event for the first time, you might be focused on the shiny. And sure. then, but you stay for what the content will be. So the person that goes to something for the fourth or fifth time is less concerned. They might look at it. They might be like, oh, cool. Okay. Billy Eilish is here. That's fine. But right. they're not, they would have made their mind up beforehand based on the nature of the content. And I yeah. think that's, that's the part that rings true to me is the other thing. And you were, I was probably gonna get here a little later, but I kind of want to stay here now is Go there. the in, the inverse, right? Is if you're going up there and giving a talk, I think there are a lot of people in this podcast audience, and we haven't talked about this a lot from the speaker standpoint. And I think what better perspective than um, to talk to you about this? Because, you know, you can't just rely on the name, right? I, I think some of the best speakers are the ones that do not assume that you know who they are, that they are that just as intent as trying to to grab you as anybody else in the first two minutes. 
Yeah, I I agree with that completely. I will add though with the the celebrities um, because this is really important to me. I don't bring celebrities just to bring celebrities. I, I yes. relevance is always critical to me. So when you see celebrities up there, I always want that story and the content to be relevant and important to the audience. So they are typically people who have their own brands, people who are going mm -hmm. deep into content, people who are entrepreneurs on the side and invest in organizations. They're, they're still providing a meaningful um, session experience for the audience. And that's really important to me also. I don't, I don't just want to have inside the actor's studio on stage. <laughs> it's not really like kind of yeah. what we do, you know? So, so even Paris Hilton, who we had uh, this past year, great conversation. She was up on stage with Bruce Gersh, her, her partner at uh, 1111 Media, and they were speaking about her media company, the brands that they work with, the content that she's doing, her work in Web3, really interesting stuff. It wasn't just kind of Paris Hilton going up there talking about being Paris Hilton. Um, to step back again and talk about just, just the speakers, I think certainly um, some form of name or brand recognition helps just from a credibility perspective, yeah. but it is not everything, right? It's, it's more just who are you? What have you done? What can you teach us? What can we learn from you? And uh, why are you up on that stage? You know, what what made them select you to be on that stage? That's credibility in itself also. And I agree that sometimes the most compelling speakers aren't even the ones that people are expecting them to be. Absolutely. Because um, if they're not the big household names, they're up there for a reason, right? And it's because we are, uh, we're investing in them. We believe that they have a story to tell uh, and, and lessons to learn. Absolutely. And I think sometimes if you're, if you're putting... If you're talking about just the marquee part of it in isolation, sure. the first is the prerequisite. Do people know who you are? Because that's going to be clearly necessary. But then it's, do you fit uh, the core tenets of of the event? And then what story are you going to tell? Those, If you can answer all three of those things, then then there's a fit. But, you yeah. know, if there's Absolutely. two of the three, well, awkward. That part of it. Once you're building out content, then you probably got a little bit more pliability, flexibility. I, I think, you know, to catch lightning in a bottle, you really need that good combination of all three things, right? A strong story, uh, a, a good approach to telling that story, and the right people telling that story. I really think that combination of all three. Um, and, and of course, you know, key points, key takeaways, something that people can learn. If everyone in that audience, Actually, to step back for a second, the reason that that the the diversity and, and multiple people on stage is often really good is because it it gives each person in our audience, because our audience is diverse. It's brands, it's marketers, it's yes. creators, it's media, it's entertainment. It's you know, some people might be in finance, some people might be in in tech. We really do span everything, and so the the more diverse the speakers are, the better the chance that someone in that audience can grab onto someone's perspectives and say. Oh, I get it. I see that resonates with me. And as long as, you know, everyone in that audience leaves having taken one thing, just one thing that resonates and, and one thing that they can implement into their lives. Uh, I feel like we've done our jobs and we've done something, uh, something right there. Yeah. Um, backtracking for a second with your background, what sure. have you learned kind of every step of the way that's shaped how you tackle this role? It's interesting. I, I started my career in the music industry. Um, I was an artist manager. 
for seven, eight years. I had my own artist management company. I was signing mainly young, undiscovered talent uh, to begin with. And this is this goes back, I don't want to date myself, but it was back to when, you know, the industry was different. It wasn't a DIY industry. I was, I yeah. was finding talent, helping them to identify their goals and achieve their goals, helping them, whether it was getting a song on the radio, touring, getting a record deal, being our own record label. We kind of did all of that in-house, um, again, with young talent. And at sometimes I, I would have labels come to me with established talent as well uh, as I got further into my career. Um, and these are, and, and, and it worked out great. Some of these artists charted on Billboard. You know, they, they had iTunes bestselling uh, albums. They, they won Grammys. They were nominated for Grammys. They, they did very, very well. A lot of these artists um, had songs that did very, very well. And, and from there, when the industry shifted to that do-it-yourself kind of industry, yeah. I realized the role of a manager was changing and it wasn't necessarily that the artist needed you to help them develop their careers anymore because a lot of them were doing that on their own the resources there were advancements for artists and the resources were there which i think is amazing and great and it's where we are today for artists creators everyone there's resources to create a name for yourself and if you do it right and you're dedicated you can make something of yourself without that help. The role of a manager now, and, and when I kind of pivoted, was almost a babysitter at that point, right? Like we, we, you know, we don't necessarily need that. And that's not what I wanted to be. I didn't yes. want it to be the babysitter. So it was all about transferable skills at that point. Like, what, what do I know how to do? I know how to work with talent. I know I've, I know how to pitch. I know that I've been pitched to. Mm -hmm. um, I know how to do partnerships. I know how to take content and, you know, get it out to an audience. I know that's the stuff I knew what was next. And, and what was next was this world. It was this interesting transition that I didn't see coming, but it came, I got very, very lucky. Um, and I ended up at an organization first where I, I was, it was a college leadership society. Um, and I was programming live broadcasts for them. I would bring yeah. celebrities, authors, executives, leaders to a college auditorium. They would give a talk or be interviewed. And that was streamed to 500 other college auditoriums for college students. Um, and that was really, for me, really important. It's where I learned proper, this form of storytelling and what resonates yes. and how to connect with an audience, albeit at that point, a college audience. Um, identifying that goal of helping them develop into leaders, who are the best people for that? What are the stories they're telling? How do we take 45, 50 minutes and make the most of it for that audience? Um, from there, I went and started programming for young professionals, uh, you know, the 21 to 30 year olds, I would say, um, across the country. I was working for seven different markets, um, programming seven events, uh, seven to 10 events a month, bringing again speakers, authors, chefs, leaders, anyone that, that had something interesting to tell uh, for that kind of young professional audience um, and doing that across the country. And then from there, I went to uh, the Paley Center for Media and yeah. I was programming um, for media leaders. It wasn't their public programming. It was for, for, it was executives for executives. And that was another lesson to, to learn. How do you now pivot into that world of identifying people to tell stories that are relevant 
um, and timely for leaders, leaders for leaders. I did that. And then from there, I ended up here and I've been at Advertising Week for five years. And I think the lesson that's really carried over is just knowing your audience, being being audience obsessed. I'm audience obsessed. Knowing what they need, knowing what they like, knowing what's going to help them to benefit. Again, I I'd never like just putting someone up there to tell a story unless it is compelling and interesting and someone can learn something from it. Um, yeah. And that's always been the case, uh, you know, and so I think it's always been about storytelling. It's always been about content and storytelling and inspiring people and teaching people and, uh, and building community, building community. Even in the music industry, it was always about building community with an artist to their fans, creating a connection with an artist to the fans. And so now all the way to where we are today at Advertising Week, it's about creating a connection audience to audience and also speakers to audience and businesses to audience and just creating an experience that makes people feel an authentic connection and a shared experience where people are learning something and, and also celebrating accomplishments too. There's less work you have to do if you have a strong community, right? I mean, there's a lot of upfront work that you have to do to build that, but mm -hmm. there's less week-to-week, day-to-day work in that. I think the transferable skill is being able to, you know, pitch and understand how to, you know, put content in the right places, right? I, I yeah, think what's, for sure, for sure. Was, I, I... was pitching a a natural or a learned skill for you? A little bit of both, a little bit of both. I, I, it's always learned because you learn what works and what doesn't. True. I wasn't just a natural, you have to know what works and what doesn't. I think the most important lesson I've learned, and, and this is really important to me. So at Advertising Week, some of the content I, pro I program all the editorial content in, in New York, right? And, and mm -hmm. a few other global markets. We were in Mexico City. I, I was working in Tokyo for a bit. So, but again, with New York as the example, people submit. And I'm mm -hmm. looking and seeing what works and I'm being pitched to. Yep. And I know from that what I like to hear and what, what works. But more importantly to me, the, the pitching when I go to, to talent or executives or whomever it might be. The secret sauce to me is always it has to be an offer, not an ask. It yeah. always has to feel like an offer, not an ask. And I don't even approach people if I feel like it's an ask, I won't just go to some like celebrity with a brand and say, Hey, I'd love you to come to advertising week. Can you come speak at advertising week? Will you please come speak at advertising. It's not that it is, you know, deep research in there. You launched this brand. You had this really great campaign. It is relevant to this audience of mm -hmm. brand leaders, marketers, media and entertainment, you know, executives, tons of press there. I really want to celebrate the work you've done for this large audience. And I know that it's going to get really great coverage in the press, but also it's going to get out there to whomever my audience is that is of interest to them. Because otherwise, like, well, I don't, I don't want to waste anyone's time, you know? And I think I, I'd like yes. to build a reputation. I think I have built a reputation of being that guy that comes with an offer, not an ask. There's such a different shift, uh, you know, and, and the, the balance just changes completely when it's an offer. I I love the way you put it. It uh, it hits deep because I work in PR, and in PR, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, 
asks are very short term. Asks are made out of desperation. Asks are things that happen when you do not have an answer to the question, right? You're, yeah. you're scrambling. Mm -hmm. And so also one of the things that I think is very true is we don't do our careers for a year or a month. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, the more, the more asks you're making, they're, they're temporary. They're, they're kind of extracting from your reputation and what you're trying to build. They're, you know, they should be done never, but if done <laughs> far less frequently, um, because they're own, it's like in, in case of emergency, make an ask. Yeah. But, you know, that's one of those things where it's like, I'm, you're talking about that. And I'm like, I would feel naked and exposed and incredibly awkward if I had to ask somebody for something and I didn't have a logical benefit or logical reason for them to do something. Yeah, you need a why. You need a why. And the why can't just be because we'd like you or we'd like you to do it. You have to, it's got to be well thought out and it's got to really resonate with them in a way where they're like, yeah, this, this does make sense. And I, I will never approach anyone unless it's it's well thought out and there's a really good reason for them to be there, which is why I think, you know, I'd like to, to think that I have a, a competitive yes rate, I guess we'll say. It's because it's an offer. It's because it's an offer. And also when they say no, I try to turn that no today into a yes tomorrow, mm -hmm. you know, next year, next week, next month. For, yeah, for not immediate, but... Over time, you just, you, you circle back, you know, there's a, I think there's a gut feel to, to totally, it's, it's not pressing, right? Because if you think of everything in a 30 year expanse of trying to create relationships, right, that the most powerful exponential value you have is to be um, helpful, yeah. to be helpful to people. It's interesting that your job, my job, and a lot of people's jobs, the execution may be different, but if we get at the core of it, it really is just, can you be helpful? Can you, can you find a way that people can help you? Can you help them? Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine the, the, the inverse of me, which is uh, I'm crafting pitches seven and a half hours a day and emailing them to people and then asking them to do this out of the kindness of their heart. That seems flawed. <laughs> it, it, is, <laughs> it might it work. Is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot harder. The work is a lot easier when, you know, there's something that clicks. For them. But, but I do understand that there is a lot of, I mean, not to get too inside the, uh, okay. inside the pitch person studio here, but what I think is there is a lot of upfront work in yeah. being able to one, have something to offer two being able to know how to craft that and build those contacts. Like it's like anything that is sales driven, right? You, at some point, you start from zero, and you eventually reach a point of comfort. You don't know exactly when or where, but you reach a point of comfort where you're like, I'm comfortable, I'm confident, I have the context, I can do everything I need to. But until that point, that's the point of work. It's all up front. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. By the time you're reaching out, all the work is already pretty much done, right? Like, I am reading trade papers yeah. every day. I'm looking at every campaign that's new. I watch commercials all the time now, like ads <laughs> that come on on screen and all i'm watching them I'm like oh that's a well executed marketing campaign or, or whatever it might be and, and again it's not just all advertising and marketing right there's media and entertainment there's tech Absolutely. there's all sorts of trends that i'm dealing with i'm reading up on all of those things and and then from there you're figuring out well what resonates what are we celebrating here or, or sharing with people is it still timely 
you know, um, is the window closed just yet? Who's the best person to reach out to, right? Who's the best person to speak on behalf of that particular project or organization? All that work goes in before you're even reaching out. And from there, once you have all that info, that's how you make it the offer, as opposed to just saying like, this person has a brand, can they come? Like, it's not, it's not just that. When you're looking forward to trends, yeah. So like think, you know, the fall for advertising week or anything, when you're looking forward, when does something rise to, I'm sure you're monitoring a lot of things, but when does something rise to, we definitely have to include it. I mean, look, there's always going to be the things that just like, there's always going to be the things that everyone's talking about. There's going to be the things that really dominate the news. That's It's always going to be there. So for example, like, you know, what, what, this year, who am I going to go out to right now? You know, it was a little, it was a little late in the game last year because it was, it was still, you know, it was about to launch, but like the sphere, everyone talks yeah. about the sphere, right? Like it's dominated social. Everyone's talking about it. Like that's a great example of, you know, people who should be expecting to hear from me in the next week or so, right? Like, because it's, <laughs> but, but, but truly like it's, it's when that came up, and when it was all over social and when people were talking about it, when you saw that it was shifting a paradigm, like that's a no brainer, you know, yes, um, absolutely. when I find something, when I find interesting partnerships, when I find, look, it, it's hard to, there's no science to it, right? It's you, you look at it and you just know, like, this is interesting. This is compelling. This is timely. And it happens year round. Look, I, I won't lie. There are times where a story breaks or something really interesting happens. That's a week before advertising week. Mm -hmm. I might not even have the spot. I'm, I'm going to find the space if I can get someone to tell that story. So the when, the when is like the day after my event ends to the day before it begins. Like it is a 365 cycle. If there's something interesting and compelling and my audience can benefit from it, I'm going to work to make it happen. And I think you're right too. Timing matters sometimes. Yeah. If your event is uh, in February of this year, sure. uh, pre Super Bowl, uh, you might be talking about the Luxor when nobody wanted to talk about the Luxor for a few years, right? Yeah. Because you're like, okay, you put a giant Dorito on there. That's interesting. People are talking about you. This is this is interesting, relevant content. But I think there's probably also a patience for you that realizes, like, okay, if I'm planning an event for six months from now. What is that? And then the other question I was going to have is, I think there's a difference between when you're curating it and you know probably that if the topic is rising, that it will be reflected in a lot of the other talks that are being given and just in people's general content. Like, I don't think you need to go out and do a lot of things specific to generative AI. You're probably assuming people will talk about it just in Yeah, and it crushed last year, of course. Like once course. I, once we, by the way, the year before that, so going back two years, um, it wasn't even a buzzword AI. It was it was uh, Web three and the metaverse. It was yes. Web three. So I I had a track called Web three and the metaverse because everyone was talking about the metaverse. The metaverse did okay. Then yeah. the paradigm shifted a little more, right? And that's when that track rebranded and it became AI and Web three crushed. Everyone wants to hear about it. Everyone wants to talk about it. And, and there's, but what's really important to me is how do you differentiate that, right? Like how is each story different? Because I don't want 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 mm -hmm. minutes, but the same exact story. 
And that's really important to me when I'm, I'm hearing pitches or I'm going to other people. If it's already being spoken about, especially on the same day at a similar time, it's not going to happen. It's just not, unfortunately. Like, I can't tell the same story multiple times. You have, for any given topic, eight to ten sessions that you could have on that particular topic for the most part. So right. how do you make it different? So, again, it's like, well, one could be inside baseball about AI. One could be about the, you know, how AI is, you know, impacting our work and our jobs in the industry. One could be about AI from a creativity perspective. Um you know, one, and, and then there's fun things that you can do as well, right? Like, so where AI is actually integrated into the session, um, and I'm working on some things like that right now, I've worked with people on things like that last year. So there's, it's just making it different. Um, you know, it's going to draw, but you, you got to differentiate between everything that you know is going to draw or they won't. Well, yeah, it would be like if you were programming a concert, you wouldn't have two cover bands of the artist come on before the artist. Yeah. You know, even if they're just slightly different, it's still the same thing. So sure. you just, yeah. Um, the, the, the nuance is sometimes you can plan all you'd like for that and you still don't. I mean, conversation is natural. And sometimes, especially with panels, you're like, I don't know. I mean, there might be a general outline, but I don't know what's going to come up. So, yeah. And it's really important to me to, even with, the things that go wrong like that to me is like, first of all, you know, I, I try to step back and say, it's not the same exact crowd. Yeah. Every session, you know, or, but let, let's just say something goes wrong on, on a stage tech, why anything, right? Like anything that goes wrong for me, I step back. I, I do my best to step back and say one, most people probably didn't notice. I'm the one that notices the most. That's so true. Two, there are, X amount of days or there are X amount of hours left in this day, X amount of days left in this event. Like you just have to absorb it and move on. Like, like I'll, I'll worry about it and think about it in three days from now when I'm going over all the stats and everything and figure out how to learn from it and move forward, you know, and what, what can we do? But like, I just, it's for me, you just got to keep going, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And we'll figure it out again later when, when, you know, we, we can determine how to, to, better prepare next time oh yeah i mean like we're anticipating like year 16 of shorty boards that mm -hmm. we, we don't look back we just look forward because people aren't going to necessarily be like oh you had a you had an award for you know vine well yeah at that moment vine wasn't relevant and necessary like obviously things change and things evolve um so i i think you know that's at least my opinion on things is that i'm never too worried like you know okay did we talk about the metaverse two years ago, and now people don't want to talk about the metaverse as much. I mean, that's just going to happen. People move forward. I think yeah. we internalize it the most, um, just because if you're programming and you're, you're trying to set the stage, then you're thinking about it. But yeah, the general audience is like, no, we've moved on. We had a, we had a good time, or we didn't, and we're ready for the next topic. I mean, look, there there was a period of time where the future of work is what everyone was talking about at every single event. No, the exact time. Mean? I had the future of work, right? And then mm -hmm. people were still talking about it, but it wasn't the future of work, but we still needed that content. I rebranded that track and the content and the central focal point to uh, the employee experience. Because yes. then people weren't talking about the future of work. They were talking about the employee experience. That's what that was. And then after that, well, maybe we, we get rid of this. And now we've got the real estate for a brand new topic that's that's trending that everyone wants to talk about, right? And so. Well, that's first, a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Because like 
the future work was happening, and then the entire future changed. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then they're like, uh, maybe we just don't even go to offices. How about that? Yeah. Okay, so that's a whole, you know, a lot of a lot of ideas and concepts, especially in 2020, that were built on something, right? Had to had to change. Um, almost nothing was static at that point. So yeah, that's another thing too. Is like you can never plan for things, but yes. If you are working on these things and you go to a lot of ones, right, there's nuance. Like I've spoken at O'Reilly AI, and then you can get really deep into that. But that's not the same kind of thing that's going to happen at a different event. There's 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 different nuances in programming for each. And so you, I think as a speaker, too, you have to be cognizant of what's my audience? What are they here for? Why are they walking through the door? I try to work really hard with the people who take our stage, you know, leading up to the event. And, and I keep in mind, I mean, I, you know, we have three, 400 sessions sometimes across a week and I might be responsible for, you know, 130 of them. But like, I, I try really, really hard to be deeply invested in every single story that is on that stage and really yeah. getting a sense of like, what is that story? Again, what, what's the story? How are we telling it? Who's telling it? And if I, if I feel like it's, it's redundant, if I feel like it's not timely enough, if I feel like it's not relevant enough for my audience, I always think it's in my best interest and the best interest of the speakers to let them know that. Not yeah. in a way where I'm going to say like, this just isn't going to work, but like, you know, I, I will give that constructive criticism um, coming from a very good place. I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I've got mm -hmm. another session that feels very similar to this, but an angle that I think that you can lend to that hasn't been taken is whatever or i gotta tell you you know uh, uh i just don't think this is going to resonate with my audience i think it's too mid-level not senior level not, I, whatever it might be and i really try to help them because you know in in a way in which it's coming from a place of, of you know hopefully care and kindness i i want everyone to be successful i always try to tell people my top priority is your top priority right like your yeah. success my success is my audience's success and this is some of the stuff that I think we could do to just make the most of your 30 or 40 or whatever minutes up on that stage. I think that whole thing as a callback, it hinges on relationship building, right? If people mm -hmm. know that your their best interest, you have that in mind, then yes. they are in turn going to take that constructive criticism and say, thank you. I mean, for me as a speaker, I would want to know what I'm going into. I would want to know what's happened previously. I actually watch a lot of things. Just I, I might know the schedule. I might theoretically know what that person's going to say, but I don't know it until they say it on stage. Okay. So I will, I will not only just to kind of know what the audience has previously heard, to use callbacks, to, um, you know, work upon a very failed stand-up comedy career, all of those things designed to make sure that you can kind of connect to the audience, but it is also doing, you know, real-time data yeah. saying, yeah. okay, this is how I can adapt. This story might not be relevant. What else do I have in the chamber? You know, one of my favorite things to do, and I, I, I you know, I have the opportunity I, I get to, I feel lucky enough to be able to is I, I love moderating conversations when I get a chance. Yeah. So I've been very, very lucky throughout the course of my career whether here at Advertising Week or going all the way back to my first career, you know, my first role, as long as I've been programming, I've had the opportunity to really moderate some of the most successful, cool, like really interesting individuals and, and being in that co-pilot seat with them 
and kind of going on that journey with them and knowing like this is this is where we thought the story was going to go but you said this and now like <laughs> let's go there and you know like it's one of my most favorite things to do and i love being in that kind of co-pilot seat to do exactly what you just said which is just like you know i, I just love taking everyone for a journey there you know and 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 being able to help walk that story to the finish line like everything it's a muscle it's it's it, it's a unique skill that you don't really you can't really explain it you mm -hmm. just you have it or you don't you learn it or it it's not quite there yet it's a it's not quantitative it's a feel to say i think we've done this enough what if we did this it's reading the room i don't know about you i am probably looking at the audience more than I'm looking and I'm, I'm terrible at eye contact, but I'm looking at the audience more than I'm looking at the other panelists for feedback. I do it to a flaw, like, like to yeah. a flaw. I, I don't, I don't love watching the conversations. I don't like watching my footage back typically, but there are some conversations <laughs> where I'm like, this was so good. Like this was so much fun. And like when you're up on stage, you're in that zone and you get off stage and you almost forget everything that just happened. Right? Like you just, you just, you know, you got from A to Z. So sometimes I do watch it back and I always notice myself doing it. I'm looking at the audience. I'm looking around the room as they're talking, but it's important to me. Like I want to, if, if I see that something was said that, you know, resonates with everyone, yeah. well, we're going to go back to that again. Right. We're going to find a follow-up question to that point. I, it's, it's so funny that you mention it. Cause I'm, I'm guilty of it to a flaw. I think it's a great thing to do though. I think it's a, it's a great kind of element to add into that is like, reading the room it's it's very important it's a terrible thing to do at a dinner party it's wonderful <laughs> to do as a moderator right it's the yeah. you know we talk so much about active listening but this mm -hmm. is very different this is reactive listening this is you are you are trying to intently listen on the, for the content but you're yeah. also having to think about what's my next question? When do I ask that question? When do I let you cook? When do I fall back? When do I jump in? When yeah. have you given me a pause? It's something that we actually do a lot in casual conversation if we're bad listeners, yeah. right? Because we will always be thinking of whatever the next thing is to push the conversation forward. So right. I'd like to, I'd like to say that this has made me a terrible friend and an excellent moderator, but it is that thought process and then over time it becomes reflexive and you can get better at this and then it becomes something that you're relaxed enough that you kind of know the beats become the same like anything like whether you're playing an instrument or sports you just kind of know when somebody's going to be in the right spot right you know what note to hit they these things start to just you feel the moment it's yeah it's it's so true but it's funny because like look, we always prep, obviously, for these conversations that we're going to have, and you have questions in mind. But there's a few things you don't know. One, like, what if they answer a bunch of the questions before, you know, like, as, as an answer to another question, right? Well, right. that crosses off a question. All right, well, now, how do I change it? Or how do I follow up with that? The other thing is, when you're prepping for this, you don't know how quick a speaker they are. Yes. You don't know how how brief people are in their, in their answers. I, I try sometimes to prep by seeing if I've, if I can find other interviews that people have given, um, whether it's on TV or on stage, sometimes you don't, you know, and, and, but like, you just never know, you know, 30 minutes can be 15 questions or it could be four questions, right? Like I, I, 
or or even less. Like I, you could have 15 questions and then you look at your clock and you're done with all of them. You've got 10 minutes left and you're like, well, now what? Like, how do I keep this going? And then you're thinking about what was said and you're throwing in follow-ups. Similarly, um, and and he's very well known for this, so I'm not throwing him under any bus. You know, I, I one of my favorite people in the world who I've been very lucky to moderate is Kevin Smith. Love mm-hmm. the guy. Oh, yeah. Love the guy notoriously, you know, the, the filmmaker, the podcaster, everything yep. notoriously, you ask him one question, that answer can go on for 20 <laughs> minutes. So when mm-hmm. I interviewed him and I had like 30, 40 minutes, I think I got three or four questions out. And so that's, that's the total opposite, which is like, all right, well now what are the, what are the three questions? What's the story I want to tell knowing like, I'm not going to get much of a word in. So how do I help tell that, that, that best story possible? This is the interesting thing about when do you interrupt? I will say that I will not interrupt for 25 minutes. If you're giving good content, mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. Go yeah. as ever long as you've got the audience's attention. And once I start to feel that lapse or I start to think that something isn't working, then I will change that. My other thing, too, is when I am interviewing, like, I love to get really meta in this podcast, but yeah. when I'm interviewing and I know someone doesn't know me or might need an opportunity to relax. I will ask something a little bit out of left field. I will ask something that is not disarming, but at least allows them to pause, Mm -hmm. think through it. And that might slow the cadence down and allow us to get into a, a a better rhythm. Because I think if I'm asking staccato kind of questions, I'm going to get that kind of, it's almost like the vibe you put in is the vibe you get out sometimes. Yeah. And you humanize the person a little bit too. When you go when you go from left field and you throw something in, you can get like a an unexpected real reaction from someone also. And you kind of get inside their mind in a way that people aren't used to. And I, I love that that little kind of uh nuanced difference between a maybe a question they've been asked before many times or or like they have a goal when they're answering a certain question and, and a specific point they want to get across. You ask something out of left field and you, you just get a, a very real moment from someone. And those those moments are priceless when you can get those. I think what I'm telling the audience is that we don't have enough pods that talk about asking questions. We have a lot of pods that ask questions, just not a lot of pods mm-hmm. that talk about the nuance behind asking the questions. Not that I'm proposing that the world needs another podcast. That was something that we contemplated deeply before we did this. <laughs> yeah. But it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, when I close these interviews, I do something called keep it short. They are three questions. The questions are short. Your answers can be however long you want them to be. Are you ready? Let's go. Question one. I want to do the inverse of this. Okay. You're a speaker. What mm-hmm. is the best way to differentiate in a crowded market? Never telling the same story. You know, always, always again, being audience obsessed and knowing that market. Um, and I think the research you put in, right? Like knowing the audience, knowing their goals, knowing what, who they are, what level they're on. Um, once you kind of figure that and also being personal, yeah, sharing your personal perspectives and your personal stories, your personal history, just everyone's story is different, right? Like everyone's experience and backstory is different when you can incorporate your personal experience into and the lessons you've learned and how you've learned those into your story, it differentiates you from everyone else because your experiences are different from theirs. Um, and 
yeah, when you focus that to that audience, you know, that's that's the best approach. Yeah, Guy Kawasaki and I chatted for the pod, and one of the things he said, and he's an idol of mine, like he said, I'm not going to give a speech about Lululemon and not wear Lululemon and do two <laughs> hours of research about Lululemon. Like I have to be in the mindset mm-hmm. and and make that unique. Like he's never giving the same speech twice, even though you you might think over a career of five, ten, twenty, thirty years. Yes, topics can start to run together. Things can start to run together, but it's those little bits of nuance, right? So I'm almost kind of, you know, call it question 1B, but I think you are you are looking for how well someone adapts and um, can personalize that content. Yeah, look, if, if you get up there and you're just, it just has to be different. It really does. I think people can smell authenticity. Mm-hmm. And it resonates. It's really, really important. I think there's also this power in, even if we know it's slightly not true, but you're at least making the effort. If we don't feel like you have something to sell, we're more willing to listen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's similar to the ask versus the offer, the sell versus like the sharing. You know, it's, it's, it's a little, it's, it's similar. In, in that sense. See, now you're doing callbacks and I love it. Again, you're doing my work for me. Michael, oh. question number two. Presentation, this can be at any stop, uh, okay. that moved you the most. Presentation that moved me the most. Sesame Street. One of my yeah. one of my favorite sessions I've ever programmed was with Sesame Street. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with them twice now. Uh, once in New York and once in Mexico City. Uh, both of them very similar in that it's it was speaking about the importance of content for children, for young children, and touching upon really important, serious topics sometimes, right? Like Sesame Street will talk about, I mean, during the pandemic, they spoke about the pandemic, right? During, you know, they'll they'll talk about um uh they, they have a, a character now who's on the spectrum, right? And speaking about that, like uh, they speak about race, all of these types of things. Um, uh, you know, the, the responsibility, the importance, the history of doing it. It just, it was such a touching conversation. Um, in New York, I had, I had a, a producer, I had their CMO. Um, it, beautiful conversation that kind of, dives into just because it's with everyone right like sesame street has been with with everyone we all grew up with it now people who are parents are are bringing it to their children and and so that was a really beautiful um touching conversation in mexico uh this was one of the few times i've ever been starstruck we had grover there like actual grover on stage communicating with their you know uh, their their head of global content or whatever and again speaking to the the responsibility and the importance of um, teaching children and and touching upon important topics, and it was just like it was it was fun, but it was it was just beautiful and and really resonated. Um, and I think also I hate to go too too long with this, but um, it just shows the importance of content and storytelling, no matter who your audience is. And just how important, you know, that that is when people are listening, the the responsibility that you have when people are listening to you. And, and, and I think all content creators, whether they're 
influencers. I hate that, you know, or, or mm-hmm. putting together something on TV or their speakers, just the responsibility when you have ears, you know, on you and eyes on you, uh, the, the responsibility, the honor, uh, that it is and, and taking it seriously and doing it in a meaningful way. I think we're one, like you can go as ever long on this, it's been, what, like <laughs> 10 minutes. Um, and we don't have another session after, but the, there's, we are losing for all the benefits. And I never, I never, when I say we're losing, I never say that things are getting worse because it's just things change. Change is inevitable. It's the only constant. One of the things with, targeted content and streaming economy and allowing for there to be a lots of different available content is that we, mm-hmm. we do kind of lose universal cultural touch points like Sesame Street, right? You ask parents right now, uh, you might ask 10 parents and there's eight different shows that kids are yeah. watching, right? It might be Bluey, yeah. it might be Cocomelon, it might be a lot of different things. So, you know, that that's what makes Sesame Street so special because it's cultural touch point across multiple generations that you can, you know, call back on and have, you know, a different mode of feel with it. I think that's, that's incredibly vital. Um, Michael, question number three, this is going to be the one that's out of left field. Yeah. Everybody has a weird, slightly divergent from their career session in them. This is my, this is my theory. What, what could you give a 15 minute talk on? that people wouldn't expect. What can I give a 15 minute talk on that people wouldn't expect? Um, that's a really good question. There's the left field one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, there are, there are I, I used to do comedy. Um, I used to do stand up for, for quite some time, um, probably seven or eight years. I was doing it in the, the clubs in New York City. I was touring colleges doing it. Um, luckily for me, in a time pre-YouTube, I guess. So, so <laughs> there, the evidence uh, ceases to exist these days, other than maybe some photos. But, but I was doing it. And I was doing it relatively well at the time. I think probably um, lessons, professional lessons in business that you can learn from comedians. Uh, you know, spontaneity, reading the room. Um, you know, uh, influence, all sorts of, of kind of elements there. I think that could be a, a fun one that I'd, I'd feel uh, pretty comfortable speaking to. I think and that's the left field answer, right? Like oh, there's, yeah. There's all the relevant stuff I'm sure I could talk about in terms of what I do right now. But uh, taking or, or any performers for that matter, uh, uh, magicians, mentalists, right? Like performers on stage, oh, speaking, you know, um, I, that's something I, I kind of like learned the art of lately is that that the art of like mentalism and, and really getting people's heads like that. Right. So there, for that, for example, there's, um, there is influence, there is, uh, you know, reading people mm-hmm. and, and a little bit of, you know, look over here, I'm over there. Kind of, you, know, mm-hmm. like, you know, all of these are actual lessons, whether it's comedy or magic or mentalism or whatever it might be. That, that can actually apply professionally when you don't think about it. And just taking those little kind of fun traits um, and those fun lessons and applying it to everyday life for people. Well, I think that colors so much of what your career is, right? If you, you told me that at the beginning, it would made so much more sense too with stand-up comedy. It's like, oh, do you want to be good at communicating with people and easily able to handle rejection? 
Boy, do I have a field for you. Because when you're saying stand-up comedy in New York, too, I'm like, well, not, that doesn't just encompass doing stand-up comedy. That also encompasses going outside and getting people to come into the show, which is a whole different thing where, where it's like, in real time, I need to come in there and do that. I've got five seconds to capture attention and convince you to pay a cover to come into this basement. Yeah. Yeah. There was a little bit of that starting out early or, or getting people to come, you know, bring your friends or, or whatever it might be. That's, that's a funny element to comedy when you're first starting out, whether it's bringer shows or barking, which is what it's called to, to get people in the, do, in the door. And then once you have them, like letting them know they made the right choice and invested, you know, time into, into you and whoever else was on that lineup. Oh, yeah. I started an experiential where we, we did something where we had to go to like 50 cities in seven days. And I had to just constantly get out of a car and go, all right, random people I don't know. We're going to blow something up. Are you ready? Do you want to do this? Please sign a waiver. Um, yeah. Yeah. That kind of that. <laughs> thankfully, a, a spot in my life that I, I strongly do not want to go back to. But it does teach you how to do things quickly in real time. And I think that part that part is helpful. So yes, less than waiting and thinking on your feet for sure. It's the most important thing I took out of all of that, right? Like whether it's crowd work, whether it was improv comedy, whatever it was like just thinking on your feet, being able to pivot very quickly, um, expecting the unexpected, being able to so, take the unexpected and just roll with it without a beat. Like that's critical for everything, for everything. Um, rejection, you know, when a joke bombs, like some of the most fun I ever had was sometimes, you know, completely just things not going over. Right. Like the most fun I ever had was was bombing in the comedy cellar and my friends were other comics just <laughs> laughing really, really hard, knowing like this is our shared experience right yes. now. And everyone else here, like, it's, it's, you know, obviously it's great when you when you crush on stage, too. But <laughs> but that feeling of that, that that brutal, uncomfortable feeling of rejection. Uh, you know, there are plenty of speakers who have used this, this term, but it's, it's really a fun one was being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Um, yeah. It's great. Once you, once you personally feel that and can do that, another thing that's really transferable in, in life and business and work and, and all of it. Michael, I never felt uncomfortable. This is great. Never, never. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Jeff. It's No Fluke is an original podcast from the Shorty Awards. It's hosted by me, Jeff Barrett, produced by Jimmy Ansoon, cover and episode art by Chelsea Shizano, and research and editing by Mashika Chudurbeidi. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review, share, subscribe, so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback or guest recommendations, send an email to info at shortyawards.com or DM Shorty Awards on Instagram. We'll see you next week. <laughs>